Blog Talk Radio. And now on Blog Talk Radio, you're listening to Wine Talk with Stu the Wine Guru. Welcome to Wine Talk for today, Wednesday, October 27, 2010. It's 7 p.m. Eastern, and I'm your host, Stu the Wine Guru, coming to you live from beautiful Coral Springs, Florida, as I always do. I'll take your calls anytime during the show at 1-646-381-4860 or email me your questions at info at stewthewineguru.com. You can also go into my chat room here on the show page and chat with other wine enthusiasts or tweet me any questions you like at stewthewineguru on Twitter and add hashtag or pound sign STWG to the end of your question and I'll read them live on the show. I want to say thanks to all the listeners out there for getting the word out about my show. Welcome to all of you listening worldwide. I call that the power of the people meets the power of the Internet. Now, if you want to find out more about me, just Google Stu the Wine Guru. You can find the websites, videos, articles, and shows I'm currently a part of. Now, speaking of articles and reviews, I'm writing wine articles and reviews for Yahoo and The Examiner. So look for those as well. I've made a Wine 101 video series that can be viewed just about anywhere on the Internet. You can check out YouTube or my website as two ideas and places to go. Tonight, the gentleman I have on as my guest makes some of the best Pinot Noirs in California. Now, you know I talk a lot about how much I love Pinot Noirs. Vineyard, Saintsbury, the name of my guest. David Graves, the co-founder. He'll be on with us shortly. Of course, the number to call in is 1-646-381-4860, or if you're shy and you prefer the computer, email your questions for both David and I to info at stewthewineguru.com. As I mentioned, I'm on Twitter, so you can tweet your questions to stewthewineguru and add hashtag or pound sign STWG at the end of your question. I will definitely read it live here on the show, as a lot of you have already done, which is pretty awesome. As always, I've opened the chat room, as I mentioned at the top of the show, for the listeners to go into and chat. You can also ask questions of David or myself, and I'll check into the chat room periodically during the show to get answers for you. But first up, I want to thank the listeners who are following me on Twitter. I am enjoying thoroughly this social network. I love the ability to talk with you directly. I like to give updates in real time, and my guests are doing the same, so keep doing it. Uh, I like it. it helps promote the show. And I want to say thanks to Twitter and social media. Some show notes. I was just on NBC television here in South Florida and did my debut interview segment with Roxanne Vargas, who was really great. We discussed this show. We discussed the Miami International Wine Fair, which I covered as a media sponsor. And uh, on on the interview, I demonstrated the proper way uh, to assess wine uh, that everyone should know. I want to thank NBC for having me, and I hope everyone watching enjoyed it as much as I did doing it. My next TV appearance will air in January. I'll be a guest on the Emmy Award-winning PBS show, Check Please South Florida. I'll be kicking off the, its fifth season, so look for that. Uh, there will be many more TV appearances, and of course, I will let you know as they happen, both on Twitter and on the show. So keep listening. Come, come listen. Come call in. Come tweet. Get into the chat room. All of it. Also, for all of you wanting to know what events I'll be attending so you can meet me like my tweets do on Twitter, 
In January, I'll be a media sponsor at the second annual Key West Food and Wine Festival, January 27th through the 30th. Come meet me there. February 23rd through 27th, I will be covering the South Beach Wine and Food Festival. They're in their 10th year. I'll be interviewing winemakers, exhibitors, keynote speakers, and even attendees. So, you want a nice little vacation from wherever you're coming from? Come down to uh, South Beach, meet me, and uh, say hi. March 18th through the 20th, I'll be at the Boca Bacchanal Wine and Food Event, also here down in South Florida. So, uh, you know, definitely come down and check it out. And I'm working on right now uh, some other events across the country and, and worldwide. Uh, there's an event coming up in March as well, the end of March, called Pro Wine. It's in Dusseldorf, Germany, and I'm working out the details of covering that as well. So that's just the schedule so far. Since I'm a media sponsor for the Key West Food and Wine Festival, I've worked out a deal for my listeners. You can purchase tickets at a 20% discount. That's right, 20%. All you have to do is use the discount code STWG when you're purchasing, and you'll receive it. Keep listening and follow me on Twitter for more information. You're listening to Student Wine Guru on blogtalkradio.com. I think you already knew that already, right? Yeah. Cheers. Remember, if you have questions, I have answers. So call me at 1646-381-4860. Email me at info at studentwineguru.com. Get into that chat room. Voice your opinion. Talk to some wine enthusiasts. Ask me some questions. Of course, you can get on Twitter. Tweet your questions to at stewthewineguru, actually. Remember to add hashtag or pound side SDWG at the end of your question so I will know to ask it to David. So let me make sure that everyone listening knows David's website and can go there for more information about his great wines. To learn more about David Graves and Saintsbury Wines, go to www.saintsbury.com. That's S-A-I-N-T-S-B-U-R-Y.com. And you can find out about him, his wines, his winery, and maybe buy some wines directly from them. I mean, that's the beauty of the Internet. You can sip some wine while you buy some wine. So, without further wait, let's bring on my guest for the night, a Carneros wine legend, David Graves. David, welcome. Hey, Stu, how are you doing? I am doing fantastic now that i got you on the phone and ready to talk to you and ask you a bunch of questions. Uh, I want to thank you first for joining me on my show and speaking with my listeners worldwide about your fantastic wines. Thanks so much. Oh, it's our um, pleasure. Excellent. So I'm going to start off with my questions because we've got tweeted questions. I've got some email questions. There looks like some people in the chat room there. We'll see what happens with them. So uh, tell my listeners a little about the Carneros wine region of California. Since you definitely know it so well, I think you guys basically put it on the map. Well, we were one of the pioneers, uh, and we're – we're still there. Um, it, Carneros is located at the southwest corner of Napa County and the southeast corner of Sonoma County, just north of San Pablo Bay, which is one of the arms of San Francisco Bay. And it's very much influenced by the, the cool air off the Pacific Ocean in the summer. And the soils are not very deep. And it's a great place for Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Syrah, Merlot. It, it's really fantastic place to grow grapes absolutely absolutely so i let, let me take my listeners back a little bit um you know of course i've had your wines before uh and uh in the past and love them of course but uh what i want to know is here you are it's 1977 so we'll take you back we'll go in the way back machine and um you meet richard ward the co-founder of saintsbury with you in yes. a brewing class at UC Davis, so I definitely need to hear a little bit about that because it's completely the opposite, or let's say on the other end of the spectrum from wine. Well, it's uh, we were both uh, we both studied something else in college, graduated, and um, then something happened, and we we both <laughs> independently got the wine bug, and so Dick moved up from Southern California, and I. Though I'm a native Californian, I returned from a brief sojourn in Chicago, 
where I was a graduate student. And um, okay. Dick had come, he'd started at uh, UC Davis in 76. And so in the fall of 77, I showed up there. And um, the reason it was the, the brewing class is actually part of the, um, if you're getting a degree in enology, you can get some credits towards your degree by taking uh, the what's one of the leading brewing classes in, in the U.S. Interesting. So, that's what we did. Now, you know, and the thing I want to ask you, and I, I, I haven't really asked this before. This is going to be a first. So maybe it'll be an interesting answer I get from you. But what is it about UC Davis that some of the most phenomenal California winemakers have, have graduated from there and come out of there? I want your opinion on it. Well, it's interesting. Not very many people know that the University of California, which is, you know, one of the land grant colleges that were founded after the Civil War, um, has been doing research in wine and grapes since 1880. And so that's about the same time, I think, almost exactly the same year that the scientific study of wine started at the University of Bordeaux. So it's got a long history. It's uh, uh, one of the several. There's a couple of other places in California when you where you can study uh, winemaking and grape growing. One is Fresno State, down in the Central Valley. Right. Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which is down in the Central Coast, great viticulture program. Um, our local community college actually has its own winery here in Napa, and they have a very good. Uh, uh, winemaking and viticulture program. So, right. uh, Davis, it's kind of the, you know, it's it's the gold standard of of an academic degree, part of the University of California, and uh, long long pedigree. It's certainly not the only place you can go to study, but it's uh, one of the best. I, I definitely believe, um, as they say, something in the water. <laughs> I- or maybe I should say it's in the grapes, but it's in the wine. But it's unbelievable some of the amazing people, and I've, I, inclusive of yourself, I've had on as guests that have uh, come out of different years, graduating years. But most of them seem to be in, I would say, the earlier part of the 70s uh, to you know the the latest, I mean, the latter part of the 70s. Um, moving forward, uh, I want to know the importance of Terroir. I know that uh, terroir is different and means different things to different winemakers. So I want to know what part it plays in your winemaking process and and what you feel about it. Well, I think one of the one of the great and interesting things about wine grapes in general is that they're very sensitive to the climate of the particular year which is, of course, why we put the vintage years on the bottles, mm-hmm. and where the grapes are grown, which is why we put where it's from on the bottle. And um, terroir is uh, its sometimes kind of a mystical concept when used by the French, but um, it's its the best word we have in English for the, because we borrowed it, of the influence of, place on the character of wine. Right. So we say at Saintsbury, the French make the best French wine in the world, uh, which is kind of a little a little zen joke. But, you know, we're not trying to make, for example, Pinot Noir that tastes like Burgundy because that's the province of French winemakers in Burgundy. But we have... Um, worked very hard to try to understand how to get the best out of Pinot Noir grown in our area. And, um, you know, our our spot makes wine that tastes, I think, has a different flavor signature than, say, Dave Adelsheim's wine up in the Willamette Valley or wine from the Anderson Valley. We make one of those, and it's pretty different than our Carneros wines or, um, you know, Rocchioli and the Russian right. River. So, you know, they, each of those expresses the site and also the point of view of the people who grow the grapes and make the wine because you don't just sort of stick your finger, one finger in the soil and one finger up in the air and say, okay, I'm sensing the terroir. You've <laughs> got to have grapevines 
that no, broke rape. No, well, you, that's what weather stations are for. But yeah. what I'm saying See, is... See, I tried that before, you know, and I, you know, I was wondering why I was having a problem. I couldn't figure it out about the you know, terroir. But uh, I was doing the wrong thing. That's what it was. Yep, must be. <laughs> so explain, uh, you know, you, you used a term I, I, I've read before, and I want to just um, maybe get an explanation. So explain about the zeitgeist of innovation and change during the 70s, the, the late 70s and early 80s that was going on. Well, you know, I feel very privileged to have known uh, uh, or gotten, you know, to meet and have known, as you say, sort of a cohort of really talented people who were um, like people like John Williams or uh, John Kongsgaard, Dave Ramey, Kathy Corison. I mean, I could go on and I'm leaving out a whole Great bunch people. of people. But, Great people. Um, you know, there was sort of a wave of innovation that, you know, AD1 is kind of when um, Bob and Davi opens his winery, and it's kind of yeah. a, a sense that there's a new spirit, of, as you said, a zeitgeist of mm-hmm. innovation and really trying to make something uh, that was second to none. Um, but there was also, it wasn't just a spirit of, golly, we can do this. It was also a spirit of inquiry and a spirit of, um, I'll use this, this is a pun, but it's appropriate, a spirit of ferment in the way we made wine. A lot of experiments. Some of them failed. But you know what experience is what you get by making mistakes. Absolutely. So there's a, the the learning curve was steep and we were going up it pretty fast, I think. Yeah, and you know, it seems that I think, that was a time, as a, uh, and again, t- not to use a pun here, but it was a very fertile time. Oh, we uh, can use puns. Come on. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, you said okay. I think p- so. people will be dropping off the uh, blog here, but uh, the blog radio, but we'll be yeah, having exactly. fun. They'll be like, oh, God, please, and not another one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. How many are we up in now? It. Yeah, Pardon? exactly. We'll, we'll, I, listen, I, I'll be here all week, everyone. I've got a million of them. Um but uh, you know what they I, say, Stu, is no new jokes, just new audiences. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So, so I guess what I what I wanted to find out was that you guys single handedly created a new breed of Pinot Noir, and this is just, and in my humble opinion, one that surpasses the old Burgundian finessed Pinot Noirs. So, what differentiates you from the pack? Well, I. I would. I'm going to very gently disagree in the sense that I don't think. Um, I mean, everybody stands on the shoulders of those who come before. So without, say, Andre Chelichev, the great winemaker from Beaulieu, uh, planting in Carneros in 1961, and making some pretty good wines, I don't think Carneros would have been as interesting as uh, to those who came afterwards. Agreed. Um, no, definitely agreed. And and. You know the the folks who started Acacia, had, they were mm-hmm. real visionaries. They they started two years before we did, and they made they really helped put Carneros on the map. Francis Mahoney from Carneros Creek did a lot of really interesting clonal work, uh, trying to sort out which uh, Pinots, which types of Pinot would do well in Carneros. So, you know, I've learned a lot from um, my good friend Dave Adelsheim, whom I mentioned already oh, up in sure. Oregon, um, but. You know the, I think part of it is Pinot Noir is our red wine. That's what we do, and so we sort of live or die by how the Pinot turns out. And um, my business partner Dick and I have had the privilege of working with some really dedicated grape growers, some really talented folks who've worked for us. Um, and so, you know, it's not something that we're these solitary geniuses. Um, we we are persistent. We don't take no for an answer, and um, I think we're pretty open-minded about what we'll try and see if it works. Well, I have to say, you're, you're definitely humble, uh, and, and and you know, you, people would say you I have a lot be, of reasons to be humble, Stu. 
Well, no, and, and no, I mean, and I'm not that I disagree. I don't disagree with you at all about what you've talked about with the, the, the winemakers that you've talked about in Carneros and in California, just in, in general about Pinot Noirs. However, I definitely think you, you, you've made a major imprint on it, and I wanted to kind of bring that out uh, for my listeners who uh, may or may not have had the privilege of having some of your, your great wines and, um, you know, and let them know, give them a little preview as to what they can. So um, let's see. I have – I'm looking in um, – so maybe I'll do some tweets first here for you. Sure. That we got. I've got a couple of them here. Now you have to realize, Stu, I'm calling you from my living room or my den where I'm looking at my TV in anticipation of the game one of the World Series. So, I completely understand. And Mr. Ward, who is at the game, San Francisco. he's already caught a fly ball. Okay. A foul. A foul so in if, there's his, any, uh, if there's any yelling or screaming, I'll understand why. Yeah, okay. I'll, don't worry. I won't. No one will be scared here. Listening, Doesn't, they, you know, they won't question it. Um, not that it hasn't been yelling or screaming on my uh, my show before. Uh, let's see. Okay, so I've got one here from. Let's see. The tweet is from Bob MC from Napa Valley, and he tweets: Ask David Graves what makes Carnero such a great place for Pinots and what other Pinots he likes. That's Bob MC from Napa Valley. Thank you for tweeting that question. Well, I think we touched on it a little bit, Bob. Um, not that Bob's listening because he's tweeting, but <laughs> no, the, no, uh, Bob is. he may be. The um, since Bob's from the Napa Valley, he knows that um, it's very different in Carneros than than driving up the Napa, what we think of as the Napa Valley, up Highway 29 or Silverado Trail. Right, sure. Um, we're we're down where the valley kind of opens up the throat of the valley, and so. Uh, the influence of the the fog um, is very important, and that pretty much all the the interesting places for Pinot Noir in California ha- they share that influence of the cold Pacific Ocean to to make them uh, cool enough for a cool climate variety like like uh, Pinot Noir. Right. Okay. And let's see, I, I forgot what the second part of Bob's question is. Oh, and it was uh, what other Pinots do oh, you like? Well, I um, I've mentioned a couple already. I'm, I really Oregon. really like uh, what Dave Adelsheim does. I like yeah. uh, uh, Beaufort makes some interesting wines. I think that uh, the wines of Rocchioli are uh, really interesting. Have a long track record. Uh, Dan Goldfield makes some really good wines at Dutton Goldfield. Um, uh, Jim Clendenin at ABC makes some really interesting wines. Uh, oh, sure, sure. So, I mean, it, in some ways, one of the transformations of Pinot Noir is that, and I'm going to, I hate it when I start sentences like this. I remember when, you know, <laughs> I, I pretty much could knew at least to say hi to pretty much everybody who made Pinot Noir in right. California and Oregon. Now, that's a very big club. And yes, it is. Thank goodness. But yes. the other interesting thing about Pinot Noir in California and Oregon, and I'll restrict my discussions to that, um, is that you know there's no single place that's like, oh, that's the place. That's where you go. Because Going all the way from way down in Santa Barbara County, all the way up, it's probably a thousand miles, uh, or at least let's say seven hundred miles from Santa Barbara up to the Willamette Valley. Mm-hmm. And in that stretch of mostly coastal territory in California, um, but then a little, then inland in Oregon, there's so many centers of excellence, and um, the wines express, as we talked about earlier, the idea of terroir, the places that they come from. But the best wines also represent a point of view of the winemaker. Right. And and that, I think, is, is an important part of this whole thing because you can't reverse engineer something very successfully in the, in the wine world. In other words, you can't True. say, you know, I really, I, I want to... I want to make wine that scores well with so-and-so. And you can't sort of 
get there unless there's some inner voice telling you this is what the wine should be like from this year. This is our point of view right. about acidity, ripeness, tannin, the use of barrels. It's it's the devil's in the details. They sort of build the wine up, but you also have to have kind of a a lodestar that's guiding you about where you want to go. That's a great point. That really is. In fact, it kind of I guess basically what it says is it's, it the individuality of each winemaker, you know, that has to shine through in making the wine and the whole idea of you know kind of um, um, kind of working it backwards doesn't you can't do it successfully because you, you all you have to have all the other components there before you can even get to that point so yeah excellent well, and let's think about burgundy for a minute i mean you got places that you know the the uh say a, a premier cruise site that was under one ownership when the monks ran burgundy now might have sure. 30 and so you got 30 people making wine there's the imprint of the place, but there's also obviously a wide range of outcomes amongst those 30 people. Some may be, you may appreciate more, some I may appreciate more. Some may be, let's face it, less good than others. Some may be better than others. Sure. And I think Pinot Noir is especially sensitive to where it comes from. Um, But it's also, you know, you can you can take the same raw material and make it very differently depending on your point of view. Yeah. It all depends on, like you said, the, you know, the approach that you take, um, you know, and 3000 years ago, uh, when monks were making it, it was a lot different than, uh, you know, now, um, and the process and everything else. So, so was the soil. Um, so grape juice one from Northern California tweets, uh, a couple questions, actually. I would love to hear how he decides which yeast to use in each variety of grapes he is fermenting. That's one question. Well, yeast, if you if you decided you'd buy every yeast from every yeast supplier uh, in who sort of knocks on your door, you'd probably have, I don't know, 200 named yeasts. Um, and they're all purported to, you know, uh, cure baldness and, uh, you know, I mean, but they, they have different purposes for different, um, like some accentuate fruit, some tend to make the wines uh, have a little more extract. Okay. Uh, so I'll tell you, we, we use, um, after having been down the road of, uh, I would call it almost needless complexity, we now are back to the keep it simple, stupid um, world where we use a yeast strain called William Sellium. And guess where that came from? Okay. William Sellium Winery. And it's a, right. liquid, it's a liquid culture, and we grow it up uh, every year. And we have like a, a couple hundred gallons of it that we keep taking some out of to inoculate tanks. And then we add fresh grape juice, and we... You know, we look at it under the microscope, and we we make sure that the, they're they're healthy little fellas. Right, you analyze. Yeah, and um, okay. we also, uh, you know, we have done some spontaneous fermentations where you use you don't inoculate it with yeast. Um, you let the yeast that are in the winery and the vineyard take over, and mm-hmm. that's that yields a little different result, um, which is fine most of the most of the ones most of the fermentations we do we do actually uh introduce the william sellium strain uh okay. as our as our uh a team for this purpose so wine society who is in our chat room tonight uh asked this question in winemaking do they allow the grapes to express themselves or are they manipulating the juice in any way i.e. including mallow etc barrel to create a particular flavor profile? Well, that would be the subject of the 10-part multi-series uh, on Nova or, you know, on PBS. <laughs> um, I guess Wine Society is going to have to watch that 10-part that series. To get yeah, out. So, yeah. Well, you know, we're, you know, it's 
There was a director's cut of Mondo Vino, by the way, which was 10 hours long. But anyway, that's another story. Oh God. Uh, Mondo Vino. So, I love the reference. The We talked a little bit earlier about how uh, Stu can't experience terroir by sticking one foot finger in the dirt and one finger right. up in the air. And assuming that position for the whole growing season would be very yeah. difficult. Yeah. Um, so we have to experience terroir through grapevines. But we also, when we do that, we make choices. We choose which cultivar, you know, is it going to be uh, Pinot Noir or some other variety that we're going to grow on a particular site? Which version of Pinot Noir are we going to use? Because there's right. a bunch of different clones. What's the spacing going to be? What's the trellising going to be? How much crop level are we going to, you know, are we going to have let the vines have a lot of crop? Or are we going to kind of thin it down? Are we going to do some leaf pulling so there's a little more sun on the grapes or not? Um, so that's just like a sample of what you're do, what the human choices are that you make to get the grapes ready for harvest. Then there's the question of how ripe, quote-unquote, do you want them to be, um, which is obviously a human choice. Sure. And then, and then, and you then, get the Wine Society's question. Yes. Um, so wait, and let so, me just say something. Let me just ask something, David. Yeah. So would it be safe to say that there's a combination or you work in tandem, there's a little bit of both. There's a little yeah. bit of manipulating, to use the word, yeah. and there's also a little bit of letting the grapes and everything express itself. And I, I think Wine Society's question is excellent because there are a lot of wines nowadays that seem like they're, um, you know, extract with an inch and an inch of their lives, or you know, they've. I mean, we do, for example, to get to Wine Society's question, we do have our wines go through malolactic, both the Chardonnay and the Pinot Noir. Uh, we age them in barrels. Um, you know, there's a lot of unoaked Chardonnay out there now. Um, but we pretty much use, I think, the updated versions of pretty traditional techniques. We have open-top fermenters as an option. We right. let the, you know, we ferment the Pinot Noir, we think, seems to like a pretty warm fermentation. But, you know, if you if you didn't ferment it warm, is that a manipulation? Or is it fermenting it warm? Is that a manipulation? Sure. I mean, it's sort of a value judgment by using the word manipulate. Because grapes don't turn themselves into wine. No. There's human no, choices no. all along the way. Yeah. And I, I mean, natural human choices. I mean, sure. not. I mean, to use yeah. the word manipulation, it is accurate, but it's not. I think it's more of a. I think to me, at least in my eyes, my uh, estimation, it might be a little bit more of a harsh terminology. Yeah, it's really not. Yeah. 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 So I've got uh, uh, T.W.E. Samoyer from New England, and he tweets, uh, asking how 2010 is looking and what he expects for the wine. And also he wants the second part of the question, ask if he's adapting his winemaking approach in any way. So I think you kind of answered well, a little bit of that. You know, when I was first visiting wineries with my family when I was a kid, because I, uh, I lived within an hour's drive of both, we're a little over an hour to Napa and less than an hour down to Livermore. So we'd often take like a, a drive, and that was my first exposure to wineries when I was a little kid. And I do remember going on the tour, not tasting the wine, but going on the tour and hearing in California, every year is a vintage year. Like Right. Uh, well, yeah, they all, have, they all have a number. 2010 comes after 2009. But I think the question here is especially related to a year like this is uh, the weather analysts or the climate analysts say that we've had a kind of a, a fifth percentile year. In other words, something that happens one out of every 20 years in terms of how cool it was in the summer. So that's why there are grapes out still on the vine at the end of October, normally pretty much everything's in by then. Uh, then there were, we had a couple of uh, 
we had very cool weather. Then we had a couple of heat spikes that kind of toasted some of the grapes. So if you visited, like, Stainsbury's Home Ranch Vineyard, there'd be some grapes that are hanging out there still on the vines, and they're going to be bird food because they got a little toasted by the uh, very warm weather we had in late August. Um, and then we've now had... Uh, a couple of rainstorms, and we're going to, it may be that tomorrow's World Series game is rained out. Wow. So, um, and that the great, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, for everybody watching as well as going, of course. Yes. But the, um, I think the point, the question is, is interesting because this is the kind of a year that tests, I mean, the really good years that are "quote unquote" normal that that sort of fit within the parameters of what people are used to doing. Right. If you can't make good wine in those years, or even in the years where it's even a little bit better than normal, you really ought to hang it up. But the 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 uh, years like this, I think, tend to separate uh, the sheep from the goats. Now, remember that Pinot Noir is an earlier variety, so it starts growing earlier in the calendar. Um, so most, I would say we haven't picked any Pinot Noir for about two weeks. Okay. Now that was probably, it's, we started two weeks late and we ended two weeks late, but you know, normally we'd be done, uh, first week of October probably. But what I'm seeing is really good color, very lovely aromas. Uh, the wines aren't terribly tannic right now. They're the kind of wines you could look at them and say, you know, when they're coming right out of the fermenter, you could almost stick a glass under and catch catch the wine that's coming out of the fermenter and just chug some mm-hmm. because they seem almost precocious in how tasty they are right now. Right. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they won't age well, but it does mean that they'll drink well earlier in their lives, I think, than, say, a little more structured vintage like 2008. Which was awesome. Yeah. Stacking up to be a real classic. So I have some email questions that have been coming fast and furious here, so let me get to some of those. Uh, let's see. Let's see. It says, first one is from Thai Girl 85 from Bangkok, Thailand. And it says, I, I really enjoy your show, Stu. I'm following you on Twitter as well. My question for David is, why did you choose the Pinot Noir varietal? Cheers. Oh, well, that's, that's um, I think it's sort of a personality trait of both Dick and me, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, you get the short version. Okay. Um, <laughs> the first wine Dick and I ever made together was a Nathan Fay Cabernet from Stag's Leap, 1978. Okay, sure. Right. And I was very fortunate uh, 10 days ago to celebrate my uncle's 100th birthday. Congratulations. Up in, in Fort Bragg. And he, Wonderful. I'll tell you, you have to have a pretty big cake to put 100 candles on it. I can but, tell. But he blew out, blew them all out. It took a couple tries, but sort of a batch process. But anyway, my cousin, his son, Larry, had a bottle that I had given him probably in, I don't know, 1982, of this wine that we made in 1978. So we opened wow. it. We opened it together. Uh, the family did before the, the party the next day. And right. it was all that from the three-point line. It was uh, it was not in any way dead. It was mature. Wow. But it was really delicious. I, I um, bet. And, you know, it probably low 13s alcohol, um the cork was in good shape, but this is a wine that had been from Cincinnati, well, been from Napa to Cincinnati to Princeton, New Jersey, and then back to California, and wow. it had survived fine. And it was, you know, we don't have any of this wine anymore, so right. it was really a treat. But that was That's our first. That was our first effort together. Um, right. The second year, this is like we made a barrel's worth just for fun, because uh, gotcha. we each had a we had a day job elsewhere, each of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we like challenges. And if somebody says that Pinot Noir in California, that's just not working. That's a, that's just a failure. And I, I think both of us had a belief that there were, there were places in California that would excel in Pinot Noir. 
Mm-hmm. And also we had a belief that by baking a statement in Pinot Noir, we'd stand out more than if we were um, a Me Too Cabernet maker. And I, I'm not trying to be disrespectful of Cabernet. But, no. um, you know, it's there's a lot of Cabernet out there, and it's sort of like the sure. big fish in the small pond situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, the next one is from Craven Wine from Cape Town, South Africa. And it says, mm-hmm. good show, Stu. You are very insightful when it comes to wine. Great guest. David, how do you think your Pinot Noirs fare with French and Oregonian ones? I guess we kind of. Uh, well, yeah, we touched on it, but I think, you know, that's a very common and uh, ob- I, when I say obvious, I don't mean like a bad question. It's a great no, question. No. Mm-hmm. Um, early on, um, you know, there was a lot of sort of jostling of, um, you know, as each of us regions tried to establish an identity. And so as a joke amongst the Oregonians, I said that, well, Really, guys, I'm not from California. Carneros is actually Baja, Oregon. <laughs> um, That's great. Because uh, that way I could sort of join the club without being tarred with this whole California label. Sure, um, sure. Clever. I Very think clever. that, um, our, as I said earlier, we're not trying to make French wine because the French make the best French wine in the world. What we're trying to do is make a right. really excellent representation of this ancient grape. As Pinot Noir, we believe, is a 2,000-year-old variety mm-hmm. that has the capability of finding a home in places other than it's where it's from. So it's if, if my wine is... Um, respectful of the notion of what Pinot Noir should be like, then I think I've succeeded. Um, And to me, Pinot Noir is different than other red wines in the following respects. It has wonderful, rich, deep aromas. It's not terribly tannic, but it it has the capability of aging for several decades. It's it's very food-friendly, because mm-hmm. of the the texture is not overwhelming, it's not generally an overpowering wine, um, and it's as we mentioned earlier, it's capable of expressing very subtle variations of where it comes from. So it's it's very easy to get seduced by uh, Pinot Noir. So yeah. I would invite everybody to say, well, yeah, let's let's try a bottle of Saintsbury or against with some Rocchioli or try it with some something from Oregon or try it even with a South African Pinot Noir to see the, sort of the the essence of place, the point of view of the winemaker, and yet still something that's delicious because it's made from Pinot Noir. Great, great. I love the answer. Um, okay, so the next one is from Irie Fred from Kingston, Jamaica. And it says, this is a great show. I watched your Wine 101 video online, Stu. Question for David is, how do you choose the grapes to make your wines? Keep up the good work, Stu. That's the email. Well, um, there's a couple ways to think of what that question means. Uh, one would be, when do I think the grapes are ripe um, in a particular I'm going to go with that. Yeah, I would think that would be what it is because obviously you, know, you have all the estates and the, and, uh, and the vineyards um, that you grow them on. So it would just be a matter of when more than how. Well, when, you know, there's, you, you sort of, I've, I've become, uh, I'm very thankful for my tax dollars at work in the form of the National Weather Service website. Yes. Because I, I spend a lot of time, like several times a day at this time of year, checking the Weather Service update for our area. And, what, not uh, the Almanac? Well, I actually <laughs> do read the Almanac because they have some pretty sophisticated people writing their uh, their forecast. For the they year, do. but they do. Um, so you got to keep one eye on on what's coming up in the next week during har- when it gets close to harvest. You have to think about well, we can't. We have sort of we can only bring in so many grapes per day. You can't say, oh, we're going to bring in half the harvest today because it's a great day to pick. You know that just won't work because sure. 
the winery is sort of sized to do a certain amount of, you know, bringing a certain number of tons per day. And if you go twice that, you can't do that more than once. And you'd only do that if, if there were a really good reason. Either the grapes are really ready to go and they're, something's going to happen that'll change that situation. That would be okay. like the only reason you'd really say, okay, we're going to strap it on. We're going to really go for it today. Sure. Um, but the other, I mean, you look at the vines, you sort of see how, you kind of ask them, uh, how are you guys doing? Your leaves, your canopy looking good? Your leaves looking good? Can you hang out there a little more? Or are you looking a little stressed? Because um, sometimes vines will kind of run out of gas. You know, it's mm-hmm. a long race. It's a marathon to be a grapevine. You know, you, you've had, you, you butted out six months ago, and it's uh, sometimes they just say, you know, boss, I've done the best I can. It's not sure. going to get any better. Time to pick right. those grapes. But in between, there's kind of like you taste them, you look at them, you taste them again, you walk around. I mean, the the during harvest, there's a lot of dust on people's boots and shoes because sure. they're sure. walking around a lot. Um, every every good winemaker has a big floppy hat of some kind to keep the sun off. Sure. Uh, because during that time of year, it's a good winemaker is spending half the time in the vineyards and half the time in the winery. You know, you think, well, they're just they're just going to have a uh, uh, they're just going to be in the cellar. But if that were the case, then, uh, you know, you got to have your finger on the pulse of what's going on out there. You, yeah, absolutely. And, you sure and it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's, it's the, it, you, you, you understand when grapes are ready to pick by having made wine. Yeah. Uh, quite a bit. That's how you, I mean, it's like anything else. You get a, you, you can do all the book learning you want, but at some point you got to get out and, uh, and do the process. Do the yeah, process. Absolutely. And at some point you got to make the call. There's got to be this sort of like, you know what? I don't have any analytical reason. I can't, I can't tell you why I think these are ready, but except that when I taste them, yeah. I think they're ready to go. But you got, yeah, you got in your heart. So. Brown, let's see, Pino Piggy from the uh, chat room says, Brown Ranch Chardonnay is delicious. How about more single vineyard shards? That's um, that's a great question, and I think I'm going to answer it just by saying, the, I don't think the market, first of all, we're known as a Pinot Noir producer more than a Chardonnay right. producer. We're very proud of our Chardonnay. We think we do a really good job both with our Carneros bottling and the single vineyard Brown Ranch, which is an excellent companion for the the Brown Ranch Pinot. Mm-hmm, most definitely. Chardonnay does have many of the same aspects of being sensitive to sight, although I think a little less so than Pinot Noir. But, I, you know, frankly, I don't think the market is ready for a whole bunch of single vineyard Pinots from Sainsbury. Okay. Um, and, you know, that, that said, I am very pleased that people like uh, you know, Paul Piggy. Hobbs and Dave Ramey, and I mean, there's so many people who are really doing a good job with uh, vineyard designated Chardonnays that um, I I love them, and I encourage everybody to go out and find them and drink them and think about why you like one more than the other. That's the wonderful thing I have to say about California winemakers is that everybody I've said this a million times on my show is everybody's there. You know, cheerleader for everyone else. You know, it's a, it's a great community. It's like a, a commune more so of of winemakers during the 70s. You know, everybody is like, hey, you made this was fantastic. It was great wine. You know, good job. Everyone's patting each other on the shoulder and and being very uh, supportive. And it's a it's a wonderful thing and that it has not left the community of winemakers in California. Uh, and I think it's something that's uh, catching, if you will. Uh, with winemakers in in other communities around the world, so it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Um, well, if you think about it, I'm just going to make a quick comment because I think you're sure, exactly sure. right. If you're if you're not guided by tradition, you're going up that learning curve I was talking about earlier. And right. if you can exchange information with people, because if everybody's wine gets better, 
more people will enjoy drinking wine. Right. I mean, yeah. in the in the broadest sense, it's not like some zero something like, well, if I don't tell him what I'm doing, his wine will suck, and people will like my wine better. Ah, it's that's that's not the way this all works. Sure. No, no, it doesn't make any sense. Um, let's see. Uh, we have a few more emails here. Let's see. The next one is from um, Ciao Bianca from Rome, Italy, and it says. Tu buona sera, come vai? Okay, a bene, tu? I won't go into my Italian here. My, my question for Mr. Graves is, what are the challenges you face in trying to make great wine? Ciao and Centano to you both. You know, the uh, I think the older I get, the less certainty I have about some things, and the more the you know a winemaker. Uh, a good winemaker maybe has 40 vintages of, right. of opportunity. A good chef will have 40 opportunities to make wonderful food in two months. And yet 40 vintages is a whole career. Absolutely. Interesting and, analogy. And so I think I'm speaking just for myself, not for anybody else okay. at Sainsbury. but. Okay. For me, um, the uh, the prospect of of when I this is our thirtieth vintage, and I you know that starts to wow three zero vintages, yikes! And when I think of all I've learned, all I was wrong about, all I was right about, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty satisfying. But there's also a sense of unfinished business that that um there's a lot of stuff still to be done to make our our wines uh, even better and it go it's in the vineyard it's in the winery it's uh it's t- how to tell the story to people i mean it's it's sure. every aspect of what we do so i've got another question here um and i'm going to try to get to some that are in the chat room as well as the ones that i have here from emails because the emails are kind of coming through and if i we have 7 minutes or so left in the show and i want to make sure everybody knows that if i don't get to your questions i most definitely will get answers for you and get back to you so don't don't worry about it if i don't ask your question uh the next one is from vinos manuel from barcelona spain and it says stu we love your show here in barcelona all my friends listen every week so when are you coming to Spain? My question for David is, and I'll answer that at another point, but my question for David is, how do you choose the winemakers you have had over the years to make your great wine? I'm a fan of your wines. Well, that's nice. that's very kind. And that's yeah. um Dick and I, you know, we didn't make um make our millions, but well, we we haven't made millions, but we didn't, you know, we came out of the world of being passionate about making wine. We studied right. winemaking. We are not geniuses at marketing. We're not, you know, we didn't. We don't have our fortune from software. Um, we are. Um, oh, my first guest for the World Series party is right here. But I'll, I'm gonna let him in. Oh, look at those figs wrapped with prosciutto. Nice. That's ooh. That's gonna be so good. So you have a little pinot with that. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely! That goes perfect. So, so um, we've we've worked with um, some very talented uh, folks uh, over the years. Our our first winemaker was Bill Nuttall, who's gone on to yes. do some great things. Mm-hmm. Byron Kasugi has has uh, made a name for himself, um, both as with his own label and as a consultant. As, as Bill, um, our present winemaker is. Um, He's from France. His name is Jérôme Chéry. And we we had a very – we looked and looked and looked. And Jérôme has been um, with us really for a transformation of what we do because we, we added a lot of resources in terms of open-top fermenters. We focused on uh, creating a series of vineyard-designated pinots. Um, and Chris uh, – Kajani is the associate winemaker, and she is uh, kind of like Jerome's wing man, except she's a woman. Right. Um, 
and and they make a really really good team. We have a, a viticulture consultant named Remy Cohen who's been just uh, she was an intern with us ten years ago, and she's now blossomed into a very uh, wise uh, grape growing consultant. So I feel very privileged to work with uh, the people that we have. Um, I look forward to both the hi, how you doing, social interaction, and also I look forward to uh, the um, professional interaction of tasting the wines. I mean, we have sometimes we have pretty knockdown, dragout arguments, but we we're friends at the end of the day. Sure, I mean, to hear not that. arguments like not argument arguments, but you know, no, I know you mean points of view that are advanced forcefully. <laughs> So I have a couple minutes left here, and okay. um, I want to ask. There's a, two, a couple of things I want to ask. First, I want to get my my new traditional question that I've asked because, as I've mentioned on my show, if you listen, uh, uh, each one of my winemakers and guests that I have on my show, every question is unique uh, that I ask. I'll never ask the same question twice, except for this one, which is my tradition question. Uh, and so here's here here's a go. Here here we go. You can have any wine you want. Tell me a wine you've had that either knocked your socks off. You thought it was like unbelievable at any time in your career of drinking wine, or a wine you want to try that you're seeking out. Oh man, well that's a that's tough. Um, that one, well, huh? I mean, uh, you know, the I love. Um, uh, I love. The uh, like Sautern, sure, uh, and you know, obviously the usual suspect in that area would be uh, Ekem, but there's so many great Sauternes out there, and uh, boy, I'm conflicted about uh, foie gras from an animal rights point of view, but boy, it sure tastes good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, is there a I, I really I love Italian wines. Um, the wines of Piemonte, uh, mm-hmm. the wines of Tuscany, Umbria, uh, Umbria, even even the emerging uh, wines of Sicily. Um, oh, sure. You know, I mean, I love the fact that there are all those indigenous varieties that are coming to the fore. I mean, yes. for today, I have a, a a bottle of Acetirico from Greece in the refrigerator. Oh, sure, sure, sure. You know, because that's one of the, the other things about. Uh, as time goes on, you realize, man, there's a whole lot of good wine in the world. I, I, I don't know that I'm going to get to sample all of it. But right. obviously, if you make Pinot Noir, you come back to Burgundy. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, I don't think I have to tell anybody what the. I mean, I've been privileged to to meet, thanks to the Oregon guys creating um, both a sort of a producers seminar. Uh, right called uh, Steamboat on the Umpqua River, but also the International Pinot Noir Celebration in McMinnville. I've met so many great producers from all over the world, but, you know, when you get to say, well, when I was talking to Christophe Rumier, blah, blah, blah. Right, of course. I mean, obviously, I'm not, I don't don't drop names if I can help it, but just, mm-hmm. you know, to have a chance to to just talk shop with people like that, it's, Absolutely. it's pretty great. And then... It adds a dimension to enjoying their wines um, that's pretty special as somebody who makes Pinot Noir. David, I hate to cut you short, but we have a minute left. So what I'm going to do is tell everybody, I first want to thank you for having for coming on my show. I really appreciate it. It was fantastic. I really enjoyed every aspect of it. Uh, you're, you're really great at talking about St. Tsberry, uh wine in general. Uh, and remember, if you want to learn more about David Graves and St. Tsberry wine, go to www. Saintsberry.com. I highly recommend you go to the winery if you're in Carneros and in wine country. Um, so I want to thank you again, and uh, and, and go go Giants. <laughs> well, we <laughs> hope it's a game. good game. You know, I don't want to I don't want to be disrespectful of the Rangers, but yeah, absolutely, go Giants. So thanks again, and have a great evening. And I'm going to have you guys on again, without a doubt. Well, thanks a lot, Stu, and. Uh, um, it's been a great pleasure for me too. I was sipping on a bottle of Brown Ranch Pinot Noir while we were talking, so that gave Excellent. me some extra inspiration. Everybody, go out and get it. Everybody, all right.
Thanks again. Take care. Okay. Thanks, Stu. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was David Graves of the phenomenal Saintsbury Wine. Uh, as I mentioned, I want to thank everybody that tweeted, everybody that uh, emailed, and everyone that uh, got into the chat room and asked questions. Um, that's the show for tonight. Um, as always, if you have any questions about the show, you can email them to me at info at I'll go on Twitter, and you can tweet me any questions anytime, and I'll read them on the show. I'll also uh, get back to you and let you know all the information. As I always say, if it's time to pour the wine, it's time for Stu the Wine Guru. Drink up, good night, and good wine. All right, everybody. Have a good weekend. And now on Blog Talk Radio, you're listening to Wine Talk 